This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Jill Steele was born to fish. The daughter of respected angler and shop owner Dave Steele, she grew up in the fishing industry where she continues to flourish to this day. Jill is an avid angler, conservationist, and community leader who faces challenges head-on. In this episode of Anchored, we discuss the realities of growing up in a fishing family, the psychology behind anglers, and how the future looks for anglers who want to make a difference. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by South Dakota and its incredible pheasant hunting. For more than 100 years, pheasant hunting has been a storied South Dakota tradition. And for the next century, they're focusing on making pheasant hunting even greater. Welcoming more hunters to the field, showing the hunting community is for everyone. That's a legacy to stand the test of time. Go to HuntTheGreatestSD.com to hear stories from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. Again, that's HuntTheGreatestSD.com. South Dakota, sportswomen welcome. Where were you born and raised? So I was born in North Vancouver and raised in North Vancouver and currently still in North Vancouver. So I'm here. I've grown up here. I've been very lucky to have grown up here. Sometimes I do think about the fact that I I never did live anywhere else. I haven't ventured out here, Um, but I think I'm also very lucky to live here. So it's for me, it's kind of hard, but to be able to still be where you grew up and you know, I don't live in the same neighborhood as where um, I grew up originally, but it's still pretty nice to go and visit like my parents, you know, home and my childhood home. So yeah. It's so funny because to me, 
you're still living at home. And I feel like I've known you of you for so many years that it's hard to believe that this much time has passed. And like, you're a woman, you know, you're sitting in front of me here as a woman, because let, let's, and I'll explain to people who are a little bit confused right now. You grew up in the fishing industry. Yeah. Right. I know people are going to see your name and go, Gil Steele sounds like Gil, a big name, yeah. but no, Jill Steele is the daughter of Dave Steele, who is just a legend around the Vancouver parts. And I don't, this is obviously not an episode about your dad, but I do want to dive a little bit into your upbringing. So tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up and we'll talk about high water and all that stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think too, like, it's amazing speaking with you and just talking with you. And I have to say that because I've known you obviously forever because you're April and you've been, uh, you know, such kind of a guiding light for a lot of us, especially in, you know, breaking through as female anglers and stuff too. And as being a young lady, when I was getting into kind of my own role in that world, uh, you've been around and it. I'm so lucky that to sit here and talk to you. But on the other hand, I feel like, yeah, there's been like this long time where we never connect and we never meet up. So it's pretty awesome. But yeah, growing up, I mean, my parents met at a fishing lodge when they were in their twenties. And so I guess my story kind of almost starts there. Um, you know, before I was even a twinkle in their eye per se, but my dad worked at Stewart Island and he was head guide there for many years. And my mom went up to go work in the post office. And she was originally from uh, the interior and from Victoria at one point. And they met up there and that's kind of where their story started. So I always think that the whole fishing thing and being part of that is literally ingrained in like my existence and my soul from the moment I was even considered into this world. So that's been really cool. And it's also been such a unique experience in the sense that I've grown up being surrounded by uh, the recreational angling community and totally engulfed in that entire world since I was very, very young. And, you know, as I grew up, we were never forced to like fishing. We were never forced to do anything that we didn't want to. And I'm, I'm really appreciative of that because it allowed us to kind of come into our own, my sister and myself, I have a younger sister, uh, kind of come into it in our own way and whether we liked it or however far we wanted to venture into it without any pressures. As kids, I mean, all of our family vacations always involved, you know, something to do with fishing. So if we went camping or we did a day trip, it kind of circled back to that. Um, and my mom was just happy to sit on shore and read a book, but it was always there and it was always kind of present. So I just feel so lucky for that. And just having those opportunities given to us, but not forced upon us. I don't know your dad well, but having met your dad, he just has this really amazing energy about him. And I mean, I know it's always different when they're your parents, but he doesn't seem like he's overly pushy. He seems like he's pretty roll with the punches. Absolutely. And I think actually one of, one of my favorite stories, and it's one that my dad repeats to people all the time in the store. So, you know, as little kids and having two little girls and my sister's three three years younger than me. So we're pretty close, but not super close. In the summertime, we'd always do um, family trips to interior lakes. That was always a big thing, camping, you know, tenting, that kind of thing. And my dad had um, a John boat actually, which I still have, which is awesome. But he would take us out on the lakes and, you know, as little girls, you know, you'd get out the attention spans about 10 minutes and it's dad, I got to go pee or dad, we, I want to go in or I'm bored or, and my dad never complained. He never said a thing. He just said, okay, pulls up all the gear, row us right back to shore, lets us off. There was never a point in time where we were stuck. 
not once. And so as we got older, we learned that we have an out and that if we want to go, we can, but we're going to come back. Because my dad said the biggest mistake that people make is they take the kids out, they get right out there and they go, daddy, I want to go in. And they say, nope, we just got here. You know, I'm not rowing you back, blah, 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 blah. And my dad said, at that point, that kid is never getting back in that boat because they know that they are stuck. And so he said that, you know, it would suck. And he's like, you know, I got lots of good workouts because, you know, I'm rowing you back and forth and I'm switching and stuff like that. But he said, I kind of built that and I, I allowed you guys to experience it as much as you want. And that allowed you to grow and develop that. And so that's kind of where it came to where, you know, maybe we'd go out for an hour and then it was half a morning. And then it was like almost fighting with who got to go out with dad, switching morning shifts and afternoon shifts. So I think that that was a really important part. And that just goes to show, you know, my dad, there was never any pressure. You know, if we didn't like fishing, if we hated fishing, he'd be fine with it. He'd be like, okay, you guys do. As long as you're happy, you do, you guys. And obviously myself, I got more into it from very young until now. Uh, My sister always enjoyed it. She's not crazy, like going out and doing weird trips like I do, but uh, she enjoys it. We do it together. Um, She goes with my dad, you know, so she's kind of had her own pace with it as well. And it's always been there and we've just been so lucky. So I, I honestly can't complain about anything. Yeah, it's cool because people email me all the time asking, for advice on fishing with children and you know how do i make my kid get into it how do i make sure that they that they want to go i am the wrong person to ask i have a 3 year old i have no idea <laughs> i mean i can guess but it changes every month but i mean you'd be a better person to ask all this advice about fishing with kids because you were one of those kids so when did the shop open when did your dad start High Water Tackle. So High Water was opened in 1986, and uh, it was actually purchased off another guy. And how old are you? I'm 31, so the shop is only three years older than I am. And uh, my dad purchased it from another gentleman who owned the shop for probably six months prior to my dad's purchase of it. And uh, the gentleman that owned it previously, I guess, didn't do very well in the customer service aspect of things. So he wasn't very well received. And so my dad actually went home one day and said to my mom, like, I just bought a tackle store. And my mom was like, excuse me. (laughs) And then that's kind of how that began. And uh, it started as a really, really small store, like, I don't know, 500 square feet, like it was tiny, like this tiny little hole in the wall. And then we took over the video store next door, which funnily enough, was an adult video store at the time, (laughs) which they found adult videos in the walls for years thereafter. (laughs) Fun fact. Uh, And then about seven years ago, we actually moved just up the street because the block got developed. But Highwater has been on Lonsdale in North Vancouver since 1986. And it's really been kind of a really cool journey. We've had a lot of um, people come through and work with us and been around. I've worked there since I was 15. So half my life now, I have actually been either full-time or part-time working at the shop. So I've, I've been very lucky to kind of develop that kind of family aspect of it. And my mom worked at the shop too. Back in the day, she worked at the shop as well. That is I actually, so cool. when I was born, I was in a, like a baby basket in a drawer behind the counter because my parents both work Saturdays. You have literally grown up in this. I know. It's just so amazing because a lot of people wish for this and you are living, breathing proof proof of it. And as we progress through our conversation, we're going to talk about, you know, what that looks like for for your future and 
how you plan on navigating that path if you even want to stay in the industry. So, so we'll get to that point, but first let's just backtrack to your high school years. So you obviously fished your whole life, but at what point did you decide, look, I really want to, I want to dive into this fully? Yeah, I would say probably getting a driver's license is a big thing, um, especially as a young angler, because that gives you a whole different sense of freedom. And so I would say kind of that I'm a late birthday too. So kind of that like 16, 17 age is why I really jumped into it into a way that I hadn't before. And that was mostly due to access and my ability to kind of access those fisheries. I fished with my dad. I would go, we trout fished. I mean, we spent countless hours together, but as soon as you get that freedom and any teenager knows this, as soon as you get that, it's just life-changing. And then all of a sudden, all these different things start to open up. So that would be probably when I really kind of started to get into it. When I got into um, kind of my early, I guess, early 20s, kind of mid-20s is when I kind of really owned it. And I'll say that because prior to that, it was really hard to kind of own it and not be the weirdo, you know, especially as a, as a girl. I remember when I was in high school, before I could drive, my dad would get my mom to write me sick notes to take me out of school so we could go fish the vetter for Chinook in like September. And like, I didn't tell anybody what I did. I didn't, I wasn't telling people that I was going, I just said I was sick because I was almost embarrassed because people thought it was weird, you know? And so kind of in those like early teen, late teen, I, I didn't really celebrate the fact that I went fishing. It wasn't part of my identity because I didn't want it to be because at that time it was weird. And that's maybe hard for a lot of other people to understand, but you know, it, as, as a developing teenager, you don't want to tell anybody that you're like, no, none of your friends get the fact that you went fishing all weekend. You know, I had like two fishing friends at that point. So those were the only people I told. So it wasn't until kind of that early mid twenties, um, I would say no, 21 to about 23, where I really started to just be like, okay, this is who I am. This is what I like doing. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I enjoy going out and I, you know, I want to make friends and I want to do this and I, I, I like it. And so that's kind of when I fully jumped into that and started to really own that as being me. And I mean, that's a pretty important time in your life as well, just identifying who you are uh, and not hiding from it anymore. And it, yeah, so I would say that was kind of when I really just started owning that part of me. And not being afraid of being like, yeah, I spent all weekend like doing this or fly fishing here. And it's, it's funny. Cause I, I, we, my friends and I talk about it a lot. Like fishing is so quote unquote cool now and it's totally changed. And right. when I started, it was not cool. It was never cool. I was such a dork. You know, I didn't tell anybody what I did on weekends, never. And now it's like, it, it's just like the coolest thing and being outdoors and stuff. It's all kind of combined in this kind of lifestyle. But prior to that, it was not cool. So it's just funny how that's changed. When do you think it started to change and become quote unquote cool? I would probably say maybe, I don't know, eight, nine years ago is when it really got cool. Not even maybe, maybe less, maybe six, seven years ago, you were cool if you went fishing and that was like the new thing. And it's just kind of changed. And I find it so interesting that that's the case. What do you think caused it? Do you think, do you think it's social? Do you think it's just the group of people you hang out with now? Do you think it's a passion for the outdoors? What do you attribute it to? I think it is social media in a lot of ways. And I know social media gets talked about a lot negatively in terms of exposure to fisheries and pressures and all that kind of stuff. But I think as a way of 
bringing angling to the forefront as a recreation and a sport and something that people enjoy doing, it really did make it, you know, cool. And especially paired with photography and videography and all these other things made it on the same level as snowboarding and all that kind of stuff. So I I think that as, like I said, as much as everybody loves to hate on social media and fishing, it did really a lot for the sport in terms of getting it out there and making it the thing to do and in a good way. And so I, I think that did help it a lot. Right, right. So your career. All right. So you graduate high school. You start to own the fact that this is what I do. This is who I am. What were your aspirations as far as a career goes at that time? So right after I came out of, um, I did go to university before I went to my local university. And then I went to Simon Fraser in Vancouver as well. And I went into environmental geography, kind of thinking maybe along the conservation officer. I was really on that for a while. I really kind of thought about that for a long time. And I went into environmental geography and I have a degree in environmental geography and it just kind of actually bummed me out by the end, the, by the time I got to the end of it. And, uh, I just thought, you know, like, what's the point, you know, all, all we talked about in fourth year was how terrible we've screwed things up. And it, it honestly kind of bummed me out for a really long time. And so after that, I just kind of kind of got caught up in that shop life. And and you know the life, right? You, you work there. It's fun. You have a lot of flexibility. You're kind of talking about what you like to do all the time. And then I kind of just got into that for a long time. And then I just kind of sta- stayed there. And I, I wasn't really necessarily on a direction because I was doing well. I enjoy working with my dad. I enjoy working at the shop. And so I kind of got caught up kind of in that life a little bit, I would say. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it just kind of left me kind of there for a while, um, just enjoying being able to go fishing all the time and talking about it, but not really thinking too far ahead for what that was going to look like for me. Had you ever thought to yourself, I'm going to take over the shop? No. As a family business? No. And that's probably the question I get asked a lot is, you know, oh, you're going to take it over. I'm like, uh, I don't, to be fair, I, that was not my dream. You know, like that's my dad's baby. That is his dream. That is what he likes to do. I enjoy it. I, I really do. But long term, I for it's not for me. I don't, I don't think I want to own a retail business. And there's a lot of people that do it a lot differently. Um, he works six days a week. I don't want to work six days a week. You know, he works really hard at making sure that his reputation and the shop is functioning well and operating well. And he fights a lot for, um, especially public fisheries and public resources and stuff like that. But, you know, I just said to myself that that was never my dream. And I've always known that I've always known that since I started that I didn't want to take it over. Um, and I, that's always kind of been my thing. And that's, that comes as a shock to a lot of people. It's like, Oh, you've worked here for so long. And I'm like, well, you kind of get caught up in it. It gets kind of easy and it's comfortable and it's just kind of a nice place to work. And I work with my dad every day and I love doing that, but it's, yeah. So no, it, it, it wasn't my dream. And as things have shifted in the last couple years and, with what's going on locally um, in British Columbia, specifically in terms of um, stock decline and kind of what's going on, I do worry about the longevity of that long term. I think it'll change. I think we'll start to see shifts in fisheries and what people are targeting and what kind of options are available. 
But it does kind of worry me a little bit about some of the longevity in recreational sport fishing or fishing tackle retail as well. I don't know. I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball, but for me, I, I, that's not my, that's not my thing going forward. Fair enough. So you get, you get caught up in it for a while. And then what happens? Because I, I actually, when I spoke to you the other day, I didn't realize you were back in school. Yes. And then I did, my brain did this crazy thing where I was like, oh, she must be in her early 20s. And then when you just told me how old you are, I was like, wait, 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 what's happening here? So you already went to school yes. and got your degree. Yes. And now you're back in school. You have my attention. Do tell. Why are you back? Yeah. So I, I do have a degree I from Simon Fraser. And what was happening is, I guess in the last couple of years, I've you know, gotten more involved um, in some of our kind of local organizations and just kind of gotten more involved in what's going on specifically in British Columbia. And, you know, I've been with the Steelhead Society there since I think 2014 and been very much enjoying kind of just being a part of that and helping out with that. And the last couple of years, just watching a lot of the changes that have happened right locally in Vancouver specifically in regards to salmon fishing and steelhead stocks as well. It kind of started to really bother me that, you know, I had utilized this resource and this, you know, recreational industry has been my entire existence. This has been my upbringing. It's been uh, what my family has been dependent on since I've been around, you know, and I, I really started to worry about what that availability would be like long-term or even what the fisheries and the stock availability would be long-term. And I started to kind of get on this thing of, you know, am I just going to take from it for, you know, I, I can't, it's hard to explain, but I, I just can't die not trying to help that as much as I possibly can. And doing so from a voice that has been in that recreational side and being from a person that has been completely consumed within that industry and having that kind of perspective added in because i i respect every you know scientific paper and every sort of scientific decision that is made and how these decisions are made but i do feel like a lot of the times people get caught up with you know, like, let's make a really drastic decision. And, you know, forgetting that necessarily people's livelihoods are on the line and kind of what that future looks like. And by all means, if things need to be closed and shut down and done right, then absolutely do it. But I think that moving forward, we just need kind of more voices that are a little bit more um, kind of comprehensive within who they're representing. And I don't know if I'm definitely not maybe the best option for that. But I think that as someone that has been on the other side of it, and someone that has utilized that resource, I have to, you know, do my part and give back in some way. And so I looked into various programs. And um, what I really wanted to get into was kind of like fisheries management, or uh, kind of fisheries consulting, monitoring and things like that. So I chose BCIT and now I'm at BCIT <laughs> again for a two-year program, um, getting into kind of that side of things and hoping that at some way or at some point I can get in and actually get my hands wet and start to, you know, at least feel like I'm making a difference. And if that's selfish for me to do this for my own self, then I, that's okay. But at least I feel like I'm doing something. 
Coming up, Jill and I share our ideas on opportunity, connection, and inclusion. Speaking of which, thank you again to South Dakota for making this episode possible. Hunting brings us together. It's a human tradition. The connection to nature, the adrenaline of the hunt, the satisfaction of eating the game you beg, it's our shared legacy. And while pheasant hunting has always been a part of South Dakota's story, they're making the next chapter even greater. Welcoming all types of hunters and boosting sportswomen's voices, that's a legacy to stand the test of time. Go to huntthegreatestsd.com to hear from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. You'll also find public land maps, season information, incredible pheasant recipes, and resources for beginners. On top of that, you can even enter for a chance to win a free South Dakota pheasant hunting trip for you and your crew, plus Shields Outfitters gear. It's all at huntthegreatestsd.com. I promise you it's worth checking out. You also have two things that are very much in short supply right now, and that is energy and optimism. So I think that you bring something fantastic to the table. If you pair those two things with your experience, I think that you could do some wonderful things. So let's shift our, our attention for a moment on what you had said about people who are being put out of work right now. Because as you know, I podcasted Jeff Hickman a couple of weeks ago, and we were discussing the latest uh, issues in the Columbia. At the time of the recording, it hadn't been close to steelhead angling. And he had made his announcement that he was no longer going to be guiding. And I I had some very interesting feedback from that conversation. I will say that while Jeff has decided to take a hard stand and not do any sort of fishing at all because he doesn't want to muddy the waters, he just wants to do, you know, like no fishing. My, My suggestion to other friends in the industry who have mouths to feed and houses to build is to pivot. And instead of focusing on steelhead, focus on the experience. I mean, I still, I will die by the saying, you know, we should be we should be celebrating the river, not necessarily the fisheries. So just because we can't fish for a certain species doesn't mean that we should just let an entire river die. You know, there's more out on that river than just one species of fish. For example, I was speaking to Mia and Marty Shepard the other day, and they were telling me their game plan about how they can still celebrate the Deschutes and the John Day and other fishery, other rivers, excuse me, um, by going checker hunting or floating the river or, I mean, trout fishing. Like, what is wrong with trout fishing? So I guess uh, just to bring this back to you and what we're talking about here is what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that we should be taking a hard stand and not even going near the river? Or do you think that we should be compromising and pivoting and finding other ways to to celebrate the river itself, maybe rather than the steelhead that are in them? Yeah. I mean, there's no denying that, you know, there there are people that rely entirely on an industry or a time of year or a season or a fishery specifically. Right. And so we, by, you know, taking that kind of cold, hard stance on it, it it does affect a lot of people. But I think that these kind of times are maybe a time for us to start thinking outside the box as anglers. I mean, we are, we're anglers because we enjoy fishing for various species, right? So you're not just going to shift a bunch of anglers into a bunch of, say, paddle boarders or something, right? Like that's not going to just happen overnight. But I do agree with your your idea of, you know, maybe we just have to shift the focus and we have to look at this not from a very thin, like fish specific, but maybe like, let's look at this at the watershed of the whole or the fishery of the run as a whole. The anglers are going to be anglers and they're there, you know, to you know, either get a grab or see it float down. So of those two things, 
they, that's what they're there for. And so, yeah, maybe we have to kind of shift how we think about things or we have to shift what we're targeting. Um, but taking a hard stance also, you know, affects a lot of people in other ways. Right. And if you're taking jobs away from, uh, people or, you know, people that rely on that kind of tourism or recreational industry, it it is a hard, and I, I don't think that there's a right answer here. And, you know, I think Jeff, and I respect Jeff's decision. I, I think that's the hard kind of one end of things to just completely cut it off. But I think maybe this just is a time for us to start as anglers, us thinking outside the box and thinking about how we can support these communities and things. Otherwise there's a big discussion right now here with the Skeena and the low numbers and people not going up and targeting fish, but you know, that, that, that Skeena region uh, and those areas, they rely on a lot of tourism from say middle of August, right to, to end of November. So do you take a drive up there and maybe you don't fish, but you go and you have some dinner at restaurants, maybe you go sightsee, you know, you go into the local first nation up there and, you know, pay to go uh, into like us Canyon and stuff like that. Like maybe there's other ways that we start to do this, or maybe you do go fishing for trout or something else, you know, and just starting to shift those things. So, but I don't think that there's a right and a wrong. And I think people are looking for an answer on what they should do for their kind of moral integrity to make them feel good about it. And I'm not going to cut down anybody that decides to go and fish on a system that has, you know, a a low return or anything. But on the other hand, if somebody decides that they're not going to fish, you know, I'm not going to make them sound like they're better than anybody else. I think ultimately we, that's kind of our own decisions and something that you have to be respectful of either way, you know? And like I said, with the discussions going on right now, it's people are looking for an answer and I don't think there is one. Well, I think that the first place to look is within ourselves. I think that a lot of people don't really take the time to ask themselves why they fish. And this changes throughout the seasons of our lives. And as we get older, this might change, right? I mean, I remember when I needed to go out because I needed to see a steelhead. And and I've got friends who just need to go out because they need to connect with their buddies. I've got friends that just need to go out because they need to connect with the river. So everyone has their own reason at a certain time in their life why they need to go out. And I think that this starts there. Maybe you don't need to go out to catch a steelhead. Maybe you just need to go out because you just need to get out of the house or hang out with buddies or whatever the reason is. So I think if we could start by just asking ourselves what we're really looking for, then we can take the next step, right? I think most of us will find that we don't actually need to catch a steelhead. Most of us will find that we need to connect with the river itself. Maybe we want to see a bear. I mean, I don't know. I could go down a million different speculations as to why somebody might want to get on the river. I like running fun rapids. I mean, who knows what your reason is, right? But I always, when I grapple with this subject just internally, it's a constant war in my head. And I I find myself always going back to the Thompson. Okay. So we watched in both, in our lifetimes, we have watched the steelhead go from being sensitive to virtually non-existent. And what a lot of people may not realize is that guiding is illegal on the Thompson. And I think that that was all part of, and I, and I am a relatively ignorant voice here, somebody who knows the history and the legalities and the policy. And Someone like Bob Hooten would be able to weigh in far better on this than I can. But something tells me that if the Thompson had been open to guiding for trout, that it may have been able to have had a little bit more rallying behind it. I don't know if that would have made a difference or not. I mean, there's a number of reasons why the Thompson still had 
virtually become extinct. But I do wonder if it would have had a different, if it would have had more weight had there been guiding operations on the Thompson. Now, moving forward a step on that thought, I'm just, the Thompson is basically a dead fishery, right? Like everybody just says that the Thompson is dead, but think about an amazing week in July on the Thompson launching up river with your pontoon boat and drifting down, sleeping on the beach at night, cooking food with your buddies at night, fishing for trout on dry flies, just having this incredible experience. Like the Thompson is not dead. The Thompson still keeps running. The steelhead may be dead, but why do we have to suddenly just give up on an entire river because one particular species doesn't return? So I just, I, I'm going on a tangent here, but I always come back to the Thompson and I'm just terrified that that's what's going to happen with some of these other fisheries if people don't start thinking outside the box. Yeah. And I, I think that I, I don't, maybe this is just my optimis, optimism kicking in, but I don't think that we'll see kind of the same and and we don't this year hasn't ended yet and so we don't know if the skina per se is like this is it and this is maybe just a one off weird year right um so i guess the next few years will be very telling but i don't feel like what happened on the thompson is going to happen on the skina because there are a lot more roots in the ground on that skina watershed and i agree with you i i think that the thompson i mean Obviously, there's a there's a hardcore group group of anglers from British Columbia and say um, the Pacific Northwest more broadly um, that really celebrated that fishery. And even though it was you know world renowned, it, it was kind of a microcosm of here in the sense that getting people to understand and have like an interest in that and rally behind that. It was a small group of people. The Skeena, you have people coming for week to two week to month long stays from all over the world. And so when you need to rally behind that and get people kind of excited about that, you have an international audience that has experienced that and had their hands in that. And so I, I'm not sure what the answer would be for that, but I, I do agree. I, I think that the Thompson always gets talked about as it's steelhead fishery and it, it gets talked about in past tense as if it was dead altogether, just like you said, it, it always gets talked about in past tense. And I mean, I've trout fished the Thompson. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I, I absolutely love it. And I think it gets kind of, you know, forgotten. And for those steelhead that are there, I mean, those rainbow trout, half of them hold that DNA. So, I mean, maybe you're not catching a, you know, steelhead that went to the ocean and back, but they live there in a different form, kind of. And so, I, I agree. I, I worry about that. But I think that we as anglers also need to learn how to kind of get that voice out there. And it, it's hard to show the general public, especially or international people, you know, why does it matter? Like a steelhead, a fish, who cares, right? You know, somebody walk in the street, I don't care. Like, why would I care? I don't, I don't have any experience with that. Um, where, you know, somewhere like the Skeena, it has like, there's kind of this glore and that's a little bit bigger than just that small little hub. And so, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? And we, we can't say what would have happened or what would not have happened. But if, if there was kind of more eyes on that system, would the outcry and the recreational sector have been able to kind of voice that and have more impact? I don't know. 
it's funny because I think in BC and a lot of times too, um, we very much like our privateness and we like to kind of keep things secret and we like to kind of, you know, not share anything and keep it. But then when it comes to a place that you're like, this needs help, you're like, well, everybody kept it secret because we didn't want anybody to know about it. Now nobody cares because nobody knows about it. And, you know, I, or protecting things because, you know, oh, you know, we don't want guides on there or things like that. And I, I think we need to kind of learn to celebrate these things on a little bit more. And yeah, kind of celebrate them, like you said, as, as river systems and as, as bigger than just the, the one fishery that it's specific to. But see, it's funny. And, and I agree with you on, on not believing that the Skeena is doom and gloom right now. I mean, it is technically, if you're looking at the shifting baseline, I, I yes, it, it's technically it's a doom and gloom, but not tomorrow. So I have always looked at fisheries as an investment, right? You, you put in, you hope for high yield. And so I can't help but look at it as a, like a chart, right? So right now, obviously we've taken a dip and I can't help but wonder, excuse the term here, but if we should be buying on the dip. So should we be taking this opportunity while stocks are down right now, before they go back up to use this as an opportunity to start to shift people's expectations to start making that pivot rather than waiting for a system to quote unquote die. Do we take the low times when the numbers are down and start to work on the psychological shift now while we can before it's too late? I just wonder if now that we're down, if this is the time for us to focus our energy on making it more about the experience of the river rather than the fishery. Yeah, I I think it is because we, I mean, the writing was on the wall with the Thompson and that kind of just like literally within our lifetime. And it, it freaks me out to think what else is going to happen within my lifetime, within your lifetime. Like it just freaks me out to think about what's coming. Um, so we've already seen that happen. So I agree with you. I think in this down moment, like maybe this is now where the conversations have to happen that didn't happen in time before for other systems like the Thompson or the gold, for instance, as well. Maybe this is the time that we start doing that kind of outside the box thinking about how we react to this. And I mean, there's lots of different uh, suggestions that are out there. And, you know, some personally, I agree with some I don't agree with. But I, I, I think it just, we have to kind of change, I think, the conversation as a recreational group on how we approach this because so many times we're just fighting over the dumb things, you know, how's the best way to catch the last one, right? That's been over and over and over and over again. But maybe we have to start thinking about just like you said, like our approach to these, to these systems overall and, and how we interact, but also how we, how we view them and how we, we look at kind of these different things. And I, I agree. I think we, we need optics because if we just start hiding from everything and we're just so afraid, um, you know, to do the wrong thing or, or to be seen in a bad way, it's, it's still taking the light off of, off of these important issues. And it, like I said, it's hard because there's no right answer here, but I, I think collectively we have to start having these conversations or in five years from now, we're all going to be like, what happened? You know, again, so I feel like I don't, I haven't had boots on the ground in so long because I'm stuck here with this COVID disaster. Um, but you are the perfect person to ask. I mean, you're in the shop. You hear the vibe. And if, if anyone likes to talk, it's BC anglers in a tackle shop. So what are you hearing over there? Are they hanging up their waders for good? 
are they going or are they going elsewhere? Are they going saltwater fishing? What is the what is their plan? I think it is shifting a little bit. And one thing that I'll say personally that I have noticed that is absolutely wild to me is the prevalence of bass fishing locally. It's taken off like crazy. And I never thought I'd say this because, you know, five years ago in the shop, I mean, we're in North Van. There's there's no bass fishing in North Van. I mean, you can go to Burnaby. That's about the closest thing. So for anybody listening, that's probably about a 15, 20 minute drive. But around me, there's nothing around my shop at all for bass fishing. And most of it is out in the Fraser Valley. So say an hour, two hours, but that's taken off. Like we have a whole bass section now. And our section is so minute compared to some of the other places in the Valley that actually like cater to it a lot more because they're closer, but we have to carry bass stuff and we go through it like crazy. And so things are shifting. Um, Lake fishing is I mean, lake fishing in British Columbia, I mean, we have probably one of the best stillwater fisheries in the world that's been um, created and, and developed and really world-class trout fisheries in lakes here. Like, and what, there's 20,000, you know, different lakes that you could go to in like a couple hours, you know, it's crazy how much we have available. And so that's really started to pick up. So I, I would say that it is shifting. And the sad thing is, is that a lot of those other fisheries that we had are kind of getting turned away from because there isn't either those fisheries are not available because they're closed or the numbers are so low that people kind of give up on them. So I would say that kind of the focus is shifting. We are seeing a lot more people doing lake fishing. That's crazy. And lake fishing's always been popular in the spring, but now it's like, it's wild people. And I, I get it, but it's, like nothing we've seen before. And then bass fishing or coarse fish fishing, right? Carp fisheries around here as well. So we're starting to see kind of those shifts. And I, in some in some ways, that's actually been a bit of a detriment um, in terms of the bass fishing uh, prolificness that we've seen around here. Uh, smallmouth bass as well, which are hugely problematic. They're in Cultus Lake now, which is terrifying for um sockeye populations no in Cultus. way when did that happen probably about five years ago yeah and so now that you know smallmouth are in cultist lake there's you know uh sculpin populations that are unique to that there's um the cultist lake sockeye run that is already you know hurting and now we have smallmouth in there so you know a little sockeye frog comes out and just smacked by a a smallmouth and smallmouth can survive in conditions a lot harsher than largemouth can. So there's worried about them getting into the Fraser, getting into the, uh, or sorry, getting into the Chilliwack, then getting into the Fraser, right? So it's, it's, we're starting to see, you know, kind of that shift. But on the other hand, you know, people are looking towards those kind of different fisheries as well. And I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how it has kind of shifted over as well. And with, I kind of with the loss of a lot of other things. I mean, we have limited chum fisheries around here. I love fly fishing for chum. It's like one of my favorite things to do in the fall. And you can't really do that much around here anymore because a lot of those runs are, you know, hurting and they're closed and, you know, as they should be for sure. But, you know, those are kind of starting to go away. So people are looking for other things that they can do. Well, let's shift the conversation into something a little more optimistic, and that is the women's group, your, your and Catherine's women's group. So 
This is a prime example of the sort of mentality that I'm talking about. A lot of newer anglers, excited anglers, anglers who are happy to be out. Um, before we go down that conversation about the mentality and the psych behind a lot of newer anglers, let's talk about the group. So what is your guys's is BC Women's Fly Fishing Group? Yeah. Did I butcher that? Yeah. So Kat, that kind of sprung out of um, kind of Catherine and I's kind of adventures on our and our kind of conversations and what was happening is how it how it all started if we want to go back to that is because I think that that's important because it really gives context to the group itself uh so back in the day um Kat and I I've known Catherine as well because she she's in the industry she works at another shop in Vancouver and so I've known her just kind of through that you know you talk to her on the phone and say hey but I we weren't friends and then I've actually known Dimitri of course, you know, Dimitri, I've known him for many, many years because he worked at um, one of the other shops, funnily enough. And uh, I've just known him through steelhead fishing and everything for a long, long, long time. And so they started dating. And um, then I was dating uh, Cody, who you know, um, as well, and they're friends and they would go up guiding in the summertime. So they would go fishing in Haida Gwaii and they'd be gone all summer. And Dimitri said to me one day, he says, you know what, you should talk to Catherine because you guys kind of like the same thing. And he knew that I was a big trout angler as well and steelhead fish. He said, you know, you guys are kind of in the same boat. Like we're gone. You got, you guys might as well hang out. So funnily enough, our first trip that we did together, we went to the Thompson and we trout fished on the Thompson and, uh, we, we had this great day and we just like, we, you know, when you find a fishing partner that you just click with and it's just easy and you have the same thoughts and you roll together and it was just really fun. And we had this great day. We caught a bunch of trout. It was great. We were driving home fun times. And so that kind of started and it was easy because, you know, the boys were out guiding and they were away. And so we were in the same boat and it was kind of all this thing and we could kind of be in the same, um, kind of headspace because of that. Right. And we kind of had each other and we go, you know, summer run fishing and stuff like that. And we just had a great time. And we were driving home one day, uh, a couple years kind of later after that. And we said, you know, we're driving home. I said, you know, this is so fun. We like doing this. And we, we talk about fishing, but we talk about lots of other stuff and you talk about boys and you talk about all that other kind of crazy stuff. But we said, you know what, we're so lucky that we have this. And I feel like more, um, you know, women or people that identify as women would get into it if they had this, because they knew that this kind of interaction was possible. And it wasn't always something about being under pressure or, uh, feeling nervous. And for both of us, you know, we've been kind of in the industry and we fish a lot in our family. So we've had a lot of exposure to it, but I said, you know, I wish everybody could have this and everybody could kind of experience this because if they did so many more people would get into it. And so you know, we want to go out and just hang out and chill and we laugh and, you know, we fish all day. And the the big thing that Kat and I always said is like, we're not competitive with each other. So she catches a fish, like I'm pumped. She, I catch a fish, she's pumped. Like it's never been competitive. And there's like that weird thing. Cause when I fish with like my boyfriend, he catches a fish and I'm like, oh, God damn it. You know, like I'm pissed cause I'm not getting one. And so it's like this weird, different <laughs> dynamic. And I, I also like fishing with people that are at, you know, different levels. You know, Catherine is a very experienced fly caster. She's very good. Um, you know, and you, you learn from each other. And she was always like very appreciative because, you know, as a, as a gear angler it, for half my life, you know, I, I 
really understand water and I, I read things very, very differently and stuff too. And so we kind of bounced and we learned off each other and it was kind of this whole thing. I said, you know, everybody should have this. I want people to have this. And we said, well, like, let's see what's out there and let's start this. So we kind of started this Facebook group and this women's group and it's just taken off. And this is all modeled after, you know, a lot of the stuff like, um, Heather from United Women on the Fly in the States, they've done so much stuff and I wish we could be at her level, but that is a huge amount of work and dedication that she has and commend her for that amazing amount of work that she does down there. Um, and, you know, just kind of looking, we're like, there's nothing here in BC like that. And we want that. So we just kind of started and it started with trips and um, COVID kind of took a huge hit in a lot of what we did last year and stuff like that, of course. But, you know, doing trips and just getting out and having these experiences and we say, you know, this is going to be a, a ladies only trip. You know, there's, there's no guys here, any experience level. We're here to help. We're here to support. We're here to, you know, just kind of be there in a supportive way. And there's no pressure, right? There's no, you don't have to know anything. And if you don't know anything, come with open ears. Like that's all we ask of you. And so it just kind of took off from there. And w- we've had so much fun with it. And it is honestly some of the most fun trips we have done in like, it's just so much fun. And it's people from all different walks of life, people that have fish, people that are brand new. And it's just so exciting. And it's taking kind of everything that you do in the shop and just kind of putting it into like a little condensed version. And it's just hilarious. And we've just had the best time and the people that we've met it. I I can't even go into explaining it. It's just been I don't want to say it's rewarding for us in that way, but it's exactly what we had thought and manifested in our heads has kind of come to fruition. And I I couldn't ask for it being any better. I follow the Facebook page and I would encourage other women, even if they don't live in British Columbia to follow the page, because it's a great place to just hang out with other like-minded people. But your guys' trips have my attention. You guys take some trips to lodges that are trout only trips, lodges that are obviously not all about steelhead. And they sell out. I mean, I want to go on one of these trips. So let's talk a little bit about what you've noticed in the new to mid angler mindset. Do you find that most of the, and I'm just going to, I'll say women because we're talking about a women's group, but this is very non-gender specific. This could be men's groups, women's groups, co-ed groups, whatever, right? But just new to mid experienced anglers. Are they more concerned about what they're fishing for? where it is, who they're going with, like what is the number one thing that appeals to them the most? I think from our experience, a lot of it is just kind of breaking that barrier of confidence level. And so for those kind of very new to mid, like I would say a lot of our trips are not super focused on catching fish and kind of playing back to what we were talking about before on that experience level kind of getting in and just getting that confidence of being out there. I think that that's such a massive hurdle for so many anglers out there is just being kind of confident in not only yourself, but also like what you are able to do and what you can, what you can have success with on your own. And so people are kind of looking for kind of a lot of our trips are people's either first time doing things first time angling or first time in a certain um, fishery experience. So maybe trout fishing or things like that. And people are just like looking for that confidence. And, and 
I, I think that that's such a big thing that we don't talk about because up until you catch that very first fish, you there's there's so much going on for you to build up to that first one. Getting over that first hurdle is so huge. And for a lot of people, it's going in, you know, am I doing it right? Am I casting well enough? Am, am I using the right fly? Uh, you know, and if you didn't have anybody, we just kind of wanted to kind of create that kind of threshold that people, we could help them pass it, you know? And then if they have that, then it's just such a easier way for them to kind of dive in. And so I think for a lot of people, it's not about that physical, like catching that fish. It's just going out and getting that initial kind of level of confidence that they can kind of feel good about. And then from there, it's so much easier to kind of move through all those next steps. And I think that's what a lot of people, whether it's in our group, in any kind of organization, that's what they're looking for. And I think nowadays, that's the biggest hurdle that any angler faces, especially new anglers. And I I do feel for new anglers, because there's so much pressure out there, just like social media, right? Everybody's seemingly catching fish and doing all this great stuff. And, but, you know, you just, there's all this pressure right away. And so to alleviate that is kind of huge. And I, I think that that's kind of the big thing that people are looking for, whether that would be something that they could identify or not. I don't know. But I think noticing from our trips, like that's what kind of gets people going. And we, people have made friendships and we have, you know, ladies that met in the group and they now fish together on their own. And so now they have a buddy and, you know, they have someone that they can go out with and they can feel confident with too. And so I think that that's kind of what it is. It's, it's, it's a catch 22 because part of me is like, oh, well maybe maybe that's where we should be focusing all of our energy is on these people who don't care about the species, rather the experience and skill, because you can be enthusiastic about skill on concrete and that's not hurting anybody except for, you know, your fly line and maybe a neighbor's cat. But then it's like the other part of me, cause I'm constantly debating myself. These, we need more people. We don't need more people. And, and I think the answer is meeting somewhere in the middle, but so the other side, the devil sitting on this shoulder says, yeah, so what we take these next couple of years to focus on those people who only care about the experience and skill, and then eventually their expectations shift and they're going to want to catch steelhead. So I just wonder if it's an unrealistic expectation. And again, I'm just thinking out loud without thinking, I'm speaking out loud without thinking first. Are we just creating ourselves a monster for the future when they do want to catch a steelhead? Or is there a way to kind of, not indoctrinate, but educate them now early on that maybe there won't be a steelhead fishery in the future, but they should still stay excited and fighting for the fishery. I don't know. Only time will tell. I think that conversation is changing a little bit um, because there's not as much, you know, nearly as available. And, you know, back in the day, you know, back in my dad's day, I mean, you could go to the Thompson or you could go to the gold and you could have a 60 fish day. And that was part of it. And that was available. And that was kind of the mindset that is shifting. You know, there's lots of different kind of um, proposals out there for how we and when I say we, I would talk about like, recreational anglers, how we should fish or, you know, ideas about one a day and stuff like that. And so that that is a conversation that's on the forefront. For sure. But I, I think that's kind of coming with this growth of new anglers as well, because you don't have those opportunities to necessarily catch like 60 steelhead a day on the gold. Like, let's be honest, that doesn't really exist in many places. So 
that because it doesn't exist. And unfortunately, because it doesn't exist, that mindset is kind of shifting away. And so we are starting to get into where people are maybe looking at this a little bit differently. I think it's still a slow process. Um, but yeah, who's to say that, you know, once that person kind of gets to a certain um, amount of experiences that they say, Hey, you know, like my only goal in life is to go and catch a steelhead or do something like that. And hopefully there's fisheries for them to have out there, but hopefully it's been kind of created more that it's, you know, not just about, you know, putting 10 fish on the beach in a day. It's about, you know, okay, I, I, and privileged to interact with this fish or privileged to even be on this waterway because of where I am or where I'm, you know, allowed to go and what I have access to, you know? So I think that that is shifting a little bit in newer anglers. And unfortunately it's just because there aren't nearly as many opportunities as there once was, but it is kind of coming in hand with the fact that I think that is shifting a little bit. And those conversations are being had with, you know, guides and stuff about, you know, one a day and things like that. And just kind of looking at things differently. Yeah, no, it's an interesting, it's an interesting time. Is your dad staying optimistic? He's seen a lot. He has seen a lot. Um, I think he's a little bit worried about the future of what our opportunities are going to look like. Um, because he did get to fish on the heyday. He fished on the Thompson days and the gold days and, you know, all those you know, kind of good days and it's different now and what it's going to look like in 10 years, who knows? Um, I think he's optimistic that there's still the same level of, um, people that are passionate for it, that there always has been. And maybe the demographic of that has changed and maybe what those people look like in terms of, um, anglers are, has changed, but there's still the kind of that core group. I mean, as steelhead anglers, we're still always going to be passionate about that. And we're always going to fight for that. I think he's optimistic that way. I sometimes think of things a little bit differently because when, you know, I've sat in on, you know, meetings and, you know, sport fish advisory meetings and, um, board of directors meetings and all sorts of other random things. And, you hear a lot of the same voices and you hear a lot of older voices and my worry moving forward. And this was also kind of my choice to go to school and my, my personal choice to get involved in a lot more things too, is I kind of worry about what the fight's going to look like in 10 years from now, when a lot of those older voices are gone. Um, and those people, cause I mean, you, I don't even have to name them. You can rattle off 20 people in your head that you know that I'm talking about that have been like constant, like, you know, thorns in the side of like resource managers and stuff that are like fighting for this stuff. And when they're gone, who are we going to have that's going to speak up about that? And so I, my challenge to not, not new anglers, but younger anglers that are coming up is we, you got to start fighting because there's not going to be anything, you know, if, if we're still on this trend that we have been in for like the last 15 years, there's not going to be a lot coming. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to consider myself a younger person right now, even though I'm not that young anymore, but you know, as I try and, you know, I, I, my voice is only so loud, but you know, 
am I going to be that old voice in 15 years? Yeah. You know, but that would be my challenge to kind of some of the younger anglers is like, you're, you're not even aware of what's been lost before your generation. You have to start fighting for what you have now. And I'm not as optimistic, I think, as my dad is because he maybe has seen, and it seems kind of counterintuitive because you might think the other way, but I have a lot more interactions kind of on the storefront with a lot of that younger generation. And that worries me a lot moving forward is who's going to fight because those voices that are fighting now are the same ones from 15, 20 years ago that have been still fighting. And once those are gone, I, I don't know who's, you know, going to be fighting. 10 years from now. Well, I think people like yourself, you're being trained. You don't realize that you, well, you do, you do realize it, but a lot of these younger people don't realize when they're being CC'd on these emails and they're sitting in on the Steelhead Society meetings and they're listening to people speak, they're being, they're being coached and they will step up when it's time. I have faith and confidence in that. What do you have? You're just in such an interesting position being somebody who was in the industry born into it or otherwise you're in the industry and you made a very conscious decision to switch gears and change paths. Do you have any, do you have a message for anybody who feels stuck right now in the industry? Because a lot of people in my experience anyway, are feeling like they have no other choice. Going and getting another job is not an option, you know, even though it is to them, it's not an option. Do you have a message to any of those people who are really feeling really stuck right now? Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, I know. And it's so, it's so dependent. You don't have to have a crazy, you know, Gandhi answer, but I mean, you know, as, as someone who's worked in and stuff, I, I, I cannot emphasize enough that I, I do love it. I, I've met so many wonderful people. I have so many friends because of it. I'm not doing it because I don't like it. I am doing it a little bit because, you know, as a 31 year old, you know, trying to move through my life and stuff like that and, you know, (laughs) future stuff and being able to afford the lifestyle that I would like to live. Um, for me, that's not going to pay for it in Vancouver. I will say that. Um, you know, and so I, I think that within the, you know, the industry, whether you're guiding or you're, you know, working in a shop or something like that, we are in a unique place. We're in one of the, the best places in the world, um, for fishing and just let, let the, the resource as its own entity be the priority over kind of, you know, what, I don't know how to say this without, I'm going to probably irritate some people, but you know, I've been on the, the taking end for very, very long, right? You know, I've been in the industry. We, you know, sell fishing gear for people to go fishing. I I've dabbled in guiding as well. So I, I can speak to that, but we all know that ultimately that resource needs to be there for Adelaide's children, for my children's children. Like that has to be there. Um, it has to be there for the environment. It has to be there for the bears. It has to be there for the ecosystems. And so as an angler, you know, it hurts me to think about what we cannot target 
as an angler that I, you know, there's been fisheries that I can't do anymore that have been lost within my lifetime. But as somebody that has been on that taking end of the resource, just remember that that has to come first. And we have to kind of start to think that way as a recreational group. And that doesn't mean not fishing. That, that's not what I'm saying. I think that we just have to start thinking outside the box and how we approach fisheries. And whether that's thinking about what we're targeting, how we're targeting them in some ways, and I'm not going to even get into that, but that's not what I mean. If anybody jumps on me for saying that whole tackle box issues, that's not what I mean. But you know, we just have to start thinking about this and, and really opening that conversation up and just kind of, and also being open to those conversations. We can't just like shut off and like not talk about it because it's uncomfortable, right? We have to start talking about those. And, you know, for anybody in the industry too, we're so lucky to work where we do. I, I love it. I, you know, and you know, there's nothing wrong with working in there. I'm making a change because that's my decision and that's how I have to live you know, to kind of exist and move forward. And, and I want to help. And there's lots of people that work that do so much good and, and volunteer their time and donate money and stuff like that. And so a lot of our industry, um, especially like the, the retail industry or the, the guiding industry give back so, so, so much. And it is important and everything they do makes, makes a difference. Is there anything really glaringly obvious that I've missed that you wanted to add or to ask me? Not really. Other than the fact that I'm just like so honored to sit here and talk to you because you, I mean, with our women's group and just with everything, like I, I'm sure you get told this a lot, but you know, you're kind of, especially in British Columbia as female anglers from here, you know, you've, you've been such a like guiding light in terms of making a lot of females or people that identify as such as breaking through into that industry. and and just owning who you are. It's so much easier when you have somebody like you that has kind of gone through that. And unfortunately you broke down a lot of those doors and, you know, you had to go through a lot of hard things. And I, you know, I've been through a lot of those hard things, especially working in the shop. Right. And it's, it's been, you know, such a, a journey that way, but also it's, I, I really commend you for everything that you've done. And also for, putting in a lot of the footwork that has led a lot of us to not only the confidence of who we are as anglers, but who we are as people. And I, I have to say, April, that's such a huge thing. And I, I really thank you for that. And, you know, thanks. Jill. Like I said, it's, it's not easy and, and it's really important in, you know, shaping who we are. Oh, well, thank you. No, I think you guys, I'm so proud of you guys. I watch you and Kat and I just, you guys you got smiles over here. Even stuck in Australia, you got smiles all the way down here. I think you guys are doing a great job. So on that note, when is your next trip and is it sold out? Um, actually, yes. Our next, well, our next women's group trip, actually, I have one on Sunday. <laughs> um, and today, so that's from when this post, that's three days from now. Um, and we are actually going to do some saltwater fishing, which is not really fly fishing per se, but, uh, we go out, uh, on the ocean locally here in Vancouver. And for a lot of ladies, um, or a lot of people, they've never been saltwater fishing just outside of Vancouver. And so we work with, uh, one of the local guiding operations actually who Dimitri works for, and we support them. 
And uh, we go out and we go salmon fish right out here. And for so many people that are, you're sitting out off UBC in Vancouver Harbor, pretty much almost, and you're out catching salmon. That is such a unique experience for people. And I absolutely love doing that with people because they just love it. And then uh, there's a couple of those. And then we're also doing surgeon trips. And then, yeah, we have a couple other things posted. We kind of kind of work through, we don't want to like overwhelm everybody with trips, but there's some sturgeon trips or some salmon fishing trips, um, Northern Lights Lodge trips. Uh, we were just, we um, had a couple ladies uh, doing some pink fishing, not last weekend, but the weekend before uh, fly fishing for pinks. And so, yeah, we always have like so much stuff on the go. It's it's crazy. I give Catherine a lot of credit because I've been in school, so I've been like a mess. But she does a lot of the organizing, and I just do a lot of the back work <laughs> kind of stuff. But yeah, we make a good team. So yeah, a couple of days from now, we'll be out with uh, everybody on the water. Cool. Rock and roll. Well, I'll include all the links to this. And then other than that, look, I really appreciate you taking the time. I love your optimism and I love your energy. And it's very, very refreshing right now. Like, honestly, I don't know if I'm just tired with COVID and bad news and a three-year-old, but you're just such a breath of fresh air. We really, really, really need you. So I'm so happy to hear that you're devoting your life and just taking this one step further. Well, thank you. And I appreciate so much for this opportunity. And I, like I said, I hope that I can inspire somebody for something. So perfect. Perfect. Well, look, I will wrap it up. Thank you very much for coming on the show and I will see you soon. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 